Hey there, nature lovers. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Just as a reminder, this is the last week that we'll be selling the I'm Plovin' It t-shirts from our Wild Chicago episode. Those t-shirts are part of a fundraiser to provide closed captioning for the Monty and Rose 2 documentary, which is a project by Bob Dolgan. So last week, get in on an opportunity to get that I'm Plovin' It t-shirt. Really excited for this week, so without further ado, let's get into it. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Birdie Bunch Podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination. My name is CJ, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts. I'm Brittany. And I'm Matt. And we got a we got a fun episode this week. I'm really excited to get into it. But before we do, how y'all this how y'all how y'all how y'all living? How y'all how y'all feeling? What's going on? Yeah, it's it's good to be back. You know, I finally moved in to Ohio. I made the big jump, moved for grad school thing. It's been a long process, and we've had some flooding, and then some more flooding, and some floors replaced, and it's been a fun time, but. I'm very excited to be back here and recording with my friends. Yeah, it's been a pretty pretty steady week. Nothing big or exciting has really been happening. I'm getting into a nice new work routine, so it's just been adjusting, adjusting to a new life down here in Missouri. I mean, Missouri. Oh. Um, I'm 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 doing very well as well. This past weekend, actually, I, I was very fortunate to go on a birding expedition with good friend and patron of the podcast, Gabe Andrele. <laughs> he came out to Chicago, went up to Montrose, we had a good time. So, hey, Gabe, if you're listening, thanks so much for this fun weekend. Um, excited to see that Nature with Gabe episode. We'll definitely share it on the podcast when it comes out. Oh, heck yeah. This is going to be fun. Sorry I missed out on a... Another birding trip, unfortunately, I seem to be always in another state when fun stuff happens. Cue broad-billed hummingbird and whippoorwill and yeah, I would it I am always in another state. The shame. Well, with all that out of the way, let's get into our first segment, which is the creature feature. Our creature feature for this week definitely ties into our topic, which is all about biomimicry. So you may have heard, if you're from the United States, red next to yellow, hills of fellow, red next to black, friend of Jack. And what that rhyme has to do with is the eastern coral snake. What that refers to is the coloration and banding on eastern coral snakes and other snakes out in the southwest United States, such as a couple of different species of king snakes. The coral snakes, which is a venomous species of snake, have their bands, at least the eastern coral snake does, has their bands black, yellow, red, yellow, black in that pattern repeating to pretty much throughout their whole body so that way if it's red next to yellow kills a fellow but the king snakes they have a different pattern but 
the king snakes and, and milk snakes, they have a different pattern. Their pattern is red next to black, and they are friends of Jack. Basically what it means is that those snakes aren't venomous. Now this trick only works here in the United States. When it comes to other species of coral snakes, this trick doesn't quite work, which leads us to our creature feature. Our creature feature for today is the aquatic coral snake. Now, if you've never heard of the aquatic coral snake, let me give you a little bit of context from this book that Jack Cross gave me. It's called Venomous Snakes of the World. You did say that they're friends of Jack. They, they I just I really did just assume it was just Jack Cross. Yeah, I think all snakes are friends of Jack. Like this I'm is not sure really mutually yeah, exclusive. Sure all snakes are friends with Jack. I've never met a snake that wasn't like, "Hey, bud. Hey, Jack. That's exactly. Need a home." That's exactly. Jack Cross, a better home. So the aquatic coral snake actually has the exact same pattern, where black is next to red, as the king snakes and milk snakes. But it is, in fact, still very, very venomous. Coral snakes of all varieties are elapids, which is a type of snake related to cobras and sea snakes. They are very, very venomous, and people should maybe stay away if they see them. <laughs> the aquatic coral snake is really interesting, though, because it has some unique adaptations to help it fit its environment, like we talked about last week. It has this really flat tail that helps it adapt to swimming in the water but it's a bit chunkier than some sea snakes that you'd see. So it's it's a really interesting looking snake. But like I said, the main part we're focusing on is its coloration. We have that saying here in the United States, like I said, red next to yellow kills a fellow, red next to black, friend of Jack. And that only works here, doesn't work anywhere else. So keep that in mind when you're traveling abroad. And that is our creature feature on the aquatic coral snake. One thing I will say, is that again, I'm finding it hard to say red next to black, friend of Jack, because again, I think that's just every snake and someone's going to get killed because they're going to be like, oh, this snake's just a friend of Jack. No, 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 but that's that's what I'm saying. Don't go by the ones that aren't friends of Jack. I think they're all friends of Jack. Well, with our creature sufficiently featured, it's time to move into our next segment which is current events. We're talking nature in the news. So I'm sad. And this is current event in and of itself. This is fairly, you could release this episode any time of the year and it would stand true. However, I was scrolling through my Instagram feed today and I came across something fairly interesting. Um, It was a Chicago-based communication page and I saw that as of recording today, it has been one year since they wheeled my boy Cha-Cha out of the city. Now, listeners, if you may remember, you can think back all the way to... (laughs) Why do you bring this up? A year because it's a year ago on the day. I, un- I understand. Is, I understand. But let's give some context to our listeners, please. And to Brittany, yeah. please. Yes. So this is a memorial, is what's happening right now. And a little bit, I'm going to tell a eulogy. However, a year ago today, 
and a year ago in general, and really for like the last five years, because no business closes just on on a dime. Rainforest Cafe, my childhood like love affair, had just been on the downswing and on the downswing because you know, admittedly, it was overpriced food at a not the best quality, but you can't put a price on an experience, right? And me, little zoo-loving boy, I grew up there. There was one in the mall out by me, and it's been since replaced by a Peppa Pig play place, which, screw that. There is no greater joy than walking by the entrance of a restaurant as you're on your way to the J.C. Penney's with, like, just a crocodile just chilling there in, like, a pool. And you can, like, throw quarters in. You don't have to worry because it's not real. Animatronics can't die. That's the beauty of it. And, like... Just it was an, an experience, and last year we lost our Rainforest Cafe in Woodfield, as well as the Rainforest Cafe downtown Chicago, which was known for having this giant, okay, massive statue of their mascot, Cha Cha, the red-eyed tree frog. And a year ago today was when they wheeled him out of the city, never to be seen again, and. Cha-Cha, if you're listening, Rainforest Cafe, if you're listening, please don't sponsor us because you don't have enough money as it is to even stay in business. However, I actually want to actually want to stop just the podcast for just a second because we actually do have a word from our sponsors. Oh. Enticing. Adventurous. Tropical. Exotic. Spectacular. Rainforest Cafe, a wild place to shop and eat. Thank you to our sponsors, the Rainforest Cafe, for that ad. Matt, please continue. (laughs) I really hope Rainforest Cafe isn't sponsoring anything. They need the money on their own. You have no business giving me money, Rainforest There's Cafe. There's no way the Rainforest Cafe exists anymore. There apparently are some. Yeah, no like, cha-chas, though. Yeah, no, no cha-chas. <laughs> I will say, half a year before, I tried to go to the one in the Woodfield Mall. Mm-hmm. Half a year before it died. And admittedly, the experience wasn't great mm-hmm. in the sense to where it was empty completely empty not a soul in the building we walked up we we're like hey you know can we can we get a seat you know and they're like oh we, we're booked for 45 minutes and i'm like excuse me where <laughs> that was people didn't show up to work <laughs> well yeah and what's funny is that whole you know we're we actually don't have any seats for you sir with, with there not being any cricket, business cricket. in there, very clearly precedes the closing of this institution. <laughs> However, Cha Cha, if you're out there listening, I just want you to know, you meant a lot to me growing up. I used to have Cha Cha merch. I had, I grew up as a kid with a Cha Cha pint glass, which to me seems like a problem. But at the same time, I'm not going to comment on that at all. That has no representation back- of your current lifestyle at all, Matthew. Back then, we just put water in it, as you know. And Cha Cha, I do just want you to know, the frog isn't listening, you, Matt. But he could be. 
He's probably like on Elon Musk's like lawn right now. He's like, oh, on the, the Jeff Bezos spaceship. That's where he no, went. No, no. Jeffrey Bezos. Cha-Cha in space. Cha-Cha was Bonus. like the one they used to like test run. The yeah, they test the spaceship oh, no. with Cha-Cha. Yeah. Well, Cha-Cha, you're definitely hearing this then because radio waves permeate into space, I think. Don't quote the science on yeah, that. We're, we're a radio. Um, this is, welcome back to the radio show. But Cha-Cha. Or anyone affiliated with Cha Cha, just know you meant a lot to me. I appreciate it. Everything you did for me as a young child with stars in his eyes, looking to get into working around animals, being surrounded by that. You gave me a place, you gave me a home. And I just want to thank you for that. Seeing that, like in Chicago, was like legendary. It was iconic, absolutely. It was amazing. I mean, it was really cool. And they killed it. And now it's gone. Rest in peace, Cha-Cha, forever in our hearts. We'll see you next year on August 25th. The Fallen Angel. <laughs> and Matt uses this as his current event again. <laughs> I literally, I wasn't planning on it, but I literally was. I was scrolling my feed, and the, the caption was, it's been a year ago since we lost our sweet prince. And I was like, no. <laughs> Please, no. I'm already fragile. Well, let's jump into my current event, which is pretty interesting this week. It is about one of my favorite types of animals, cephalopods. Now, if you're not familiar with cephalopods, uh, they include octopus, squids, and specifically for this article, cuttlefish. The article comes from The Atlantic, and it's titled, The Best Kind of Aging Brain. Unlike humans, cuttlefish can form crystal clear memories even in their final weeks. So unlike me, the cuttlefish does remember their childhood. The cuttlefish do remember their childhoods. Cuttlefish with their blimp-shaped bodies and their eight squiggly arms, they don't age like people do. Sexual maturity comes really late in life for them, about three quarters through their li life, which is like two years long. So that would be like the equivalent of a human becoming sexually mature at 60 years old. Even like geriatric cephalopods spend several weeks on an absolute bender with coupling up as many partners as they can, only after close this frantic sexual bonanza to die. One heck of a way to go. One heck of a way to go, absolutely. Going out with a bang. Pun intended. What pun? But before that rapid, like, you know breaking down of their brain, going into this sexual frenzy, they're pretty sound of body and also sound of mind. Um, a, a group of scientists have found that the common cuttlefish can still form and retain crystal clear memories of personal experiences just a month before their death. They can catalog what, when, and where of recent events and use that knowledge to inform their actions in the present. It's an animal approximation of what's called episodic memory in humans. And an ability like this that's often billed as a sort of mental time travel that allow creatures to relive the past experiences. For us, episodic memory usually starts to fade around retirement age, but for the cuttlefish, it appears to exist deep within their golden months. The fact that cuttlefish can form episodic-like memories at any age is really remarkable. Among humans, episodic memories are the source of subjective knowledge that can't be found in textbooks or Google searches. They live in the world of personal storytelling. 
each unique to the individual who crafts them. Basically, they just did lots of studies with cuttlefish, kind of testing their knowledge and like where food was coming from and, you know, different like puzzles that they had to do and the different feeding spots were moving. And they were really just knowledgeable on every single detail of that, pretty much up to months until they passed, which is just so, so interesting. Most elderly people would have flunked a human version of this team's experiments, but all of the cuttlefish passed, which is an extremely complex thing for an animal to do. If anything, the lead scientist said that the older ones were faster at learning the rules and applying them in new contexts, which is pretty mind-blowing. In a word, cuttlefish are insane, and I really, really love them. That's, like, really weird and fascinating and, like, you know, there's always, like, those crazy, like, exceptions to rules, especially in nature. And I just think, like, an ant, like the cuttlefish just being able to be, like, Yep, I know exactly when and where, and I'm 60 years old. And I'm just going to bang this out really quick. Like, it's just cool. It's, yeah, it always, what I love about this podcast and nature in general is it puts into perspective how limited our understanding of the way the world works is. You know, like, we have this human concept of, like, hey, you know, you're growing up, and, you know, you're you're having kids at, like, 25, 30, 35, something like that. It's a big old range. And then cuttlefish are just like, here, 60 years old. Nice. It's like, it. Yeah, but that's really like a year and a half. Well, well, yes, still, but like, you know, perspective wise. And like, it's just interesting that we have these constructs and these constraints that we have built into human society that when you look at nature, you realize how often and how easily they break down. It's very, very intriguing of a notion. All right, so from the cuttlefish to a war. So my uh, my current event is um, called Feathers Flying, Why Cockatoos and Rainbow Lorikeets Have Gone to War. Um, this Wait, is this makes me so sad. <laughs> um, the article comes from The Guardian. And so basically... Both species are pretty much just at war for resources. So cockatoos need to um, be able to lay their nests and breed in large hollowed out cavities and trees. But rainbow lorikeets also find their homes to be in those same spots. So the cockatoos will usually are are the ones who usually will win, especially with like bigger hollowed out spaces um, because they are just bigger birds. Um, but there's like this fight of resources available. And the unfortunate thing is the more that humans impose on their area, the more of a, of a resource war there's gonna be between those two birds because there's gonna be less resources because of humans. Um, I did say though that rainbow lorikeets are, um, they're able to utilize like smaller hollowed out spaces. Um, so a lot of times if they get kicked out of the bigger ones, they're able to find a smaller one, but sometimes they don't. And then it's just a war and it's pretty sad. As a person who really loves both cockatoos and lorikeets, it's pretty distressing to me. But given all that Australia has gone through in the past couple of years, 
it's definitely makes sense that there's this kind of behavior of being observed between these two species, right? You know, with all of the bushfires ruining so much habitat, so many species are still trying to recover. And the fact that there's a lot of competition really isn't that surprising given that. So I really appreciate this current event, even though it's a little distressing. But with that current event out of the way, that does move us out of this segment into our next. We're jumping into our main topic right now. So one thing we talk about on the Birdie Bunch podcast is animals. We love nature. We love conservation. We love it. We're nature lovers. And animals also love animals. Sometimes so much, they even cosplay as them. <laughs> I just want you to know, this is a mess. <laughs> it's 9.10, and I've been working since 7 in the morning. I haven't, I've eaten one meal today. I think I need to go eat, but also... One thing we, we talk do... about on the Birdie Bunch podcast is animals. <laughs> and we do. We do talk animals. <laughs> really? The listeners, this just in. We More animals. We're nature lovers here on the Birdie Bunch podcast. And animals More also love animals. animals. Animals love animals so much, sometimes they pretend to be each other. We're talking biomimicry today. Animals do this for a variety of reasons. Some are defense reasons. Some are predatory reasons, and some are just to be crazy weirdos. So we're going to get into a bunch of examples of animals being biomimicry fiends. So we love biomimicry. Matt also loves biomimicry. Matt, why don't you go first? Heck yeah. You know, ever since our last episode, I've been kind of thinking about this, our last episode on biomimicry. So it's a good thing that I made sure to be prepared and actually come with the right form of biomimicry this time. You know, what kind of idiot would bring an animal that resembles another animal when like, obviously biomimicry, what we're talking about is when humans learn sciencey things from animals Matt, and implement Matt, them in human society. Matt, what? Matt, Matt, no, no, no. Today, we are indeed talking about animals mimicking other animals. You messed it up again, boy. You really can't keep switching it up on me like this. Like, this is... We, we, we need... The title just... of the episode is Biomimicry, but like the other one. <sighs> all right. In that case, well, there goes all my research for that. But in the meantime, you know, as we're working on it, I guess I could talk about something that I do know um, while I get research in for the other one. There is a large quantity of bugs and animals in general out there that use a type of mimicry known as Batesian mimicry. There are a couple of different forms of mimicry, but Batesian mimicry in specific, that is spelled B-A-T-E-S-I-A-N, is a type of defensive behavior in which a species that would normally be palatable to a predator would normally be a really good prey source resembles an unpalatable or toxic species in order to avoid being preyed upon. Uh, now, what does this mean? You know, there's really the biggest one that we talk about in our area is the viceroy versus the monarch butterfly. The monarch butterfly, very brightly colored butterfly to let you know, please don't eat me. I consume milkweed as a youngling, which therefore will kill you or make you very sick if you consume me. Monarchs are toxic. They don't really get preyed upon often. Viceroys are completely non-toxic. They're no more toxic than the everyday average Crayola that you would use in first grade. However, their markings 
are extremely similar to the monarch butterfly in order to mimic that kind of stay away from me coloration. And thus, the Viceroy does not get consumed. However, this isn't what I want to talk about because as a Moth fan, I'm kind of getting sick of butterflies getting the limelight all the time, you know? Like, statistically speaking, most of the members of the group Lepidoptera are moths. And so I would like to bring some of those folks to the forefront, especially with my research that goes on. And there's a very large quantity of moths that actually undergo mimicry, especially Batesian mimicry as well. Now, there's a ton spread across different taxa, so I'm not going to denote them all, but my favorite form of it personally is these moths that look like wasps. There's a ton of them that are all not necessarily related super closely, but they have the bright yellow and black striped coloring, these long black antennae, and even they've lost the scales on their wings so that they look more bee-like. Some of them even buzz. It's really, really crazy how really similar they are. And the reason that a wasp looks the way it does is because it's signaling to predators, hey, you come around me, I'm going to sting you, boy. Like, that's their whole point. And it is so hard to tell when these moths are flying around which one is a wasp and which one is a moth. They're distributed across the world. It's really, really incredible stuff. And some of their only tells are really only viewable when you have like them pinned or you have them in the hand because they still have those chunkier antennae that are reminiscent of a moth. So, you know, bees have that really wispy looking thing going on. However, moths have, you know, the nice chunky, feathery, leafy, whatever you'd like to describe them. The other one being that their abdomen is thickly joined to the thorax. So moths kind of have that chunky look. They're more filled out in a way, whereas a wasp or bee's abdomen kind of tapers into the thorax and then um, builds back up again. So there's not that thin connecting point as well, but when you're looking at one of these flying, good luck telling that. So I'm glad I was able to provide that because that's something that I studied before. Um, but yeah, Batesian mimicry, especially in moths, is phenomenal. It's really, really cool. And it's one of my favorite instances of species that pretend to be another. I think that's really cool. I think that sometimes when you think about just animals in general, you think about big boys, like you think about mammals, you think about those guys, but something as small as like moths and, and, and wasps and things like that, they all have these really cool ways of like being able to survive and thrive and whatever. And so I think we should be saving our bees, but man, do I hate a wasp. So I think the fact that that moth can like really deter is a great, it's a really cool form of mimicry and a really cool adaptation to throw that back. Love to see it, love to hear it. So as many of our listeners may know, one of my quarantine activities that I picked up is birding, thanks to our good friend Matt Valiga. And something that I hate when I'm birding is not being able to identify the call of a bird, especially because there's a ton of mimickers. There are so many different types of birds who sing other birds' calls. And this can be for a variety of reasons. It can be to disguise themselves from predators. It can be to put their eggs in other birds' nests. But specifically, 
um, for this example, it could be just to be a prankster. <laughs> so this is an example of a bird who's a mimicker who I see all too often when I'm birding in the Midwest. And it's a bird that I think is really, really pretty. It's called the blue jay. You've probably heard of it, but blue jays have a wide variety of vocal sounds that they can make, and they are incredible mimickers. What they're most known for mimicking is actually species of hawks. So nobody really knows exactly why they do it, but the studies that have been done by ornithologists say that it could either be a warning to other blue jays that there's a hawk nearby, or just to be a prankster to fool other bird species into believing there's a hawk so that they fly away and leave food for the jays. Like, that, <laughs> that's a legitimate scientific theory of why blue jays make hawk noises. And there's a ton of different species of hawks that blue jays have been observed mimicking, from red-shouldered hawks and red-tailed hawks, to Cooper's hawks, ospreys, American kestrels, and even bald eagles. Their variety of, you know, uh, vocal noises has really no limits. So that's the blue jay. I'm so genuinely glad that you brought that up because when I took an ornithology class in my undergrad, I will say the biggest learning curve was learning that we we have, you know, learned in the lab, we had these taxonomic group known as the mimids, right? It's your catbird, your thrasher, and your mockingbirds. And those were the birds that their breeding songs are literally just incorporating other bird songs into them. And the biggest learning curve was learning that those are not the only birds that mimic. Just because they're called the mimids does not mean that your blue jays and your starlings and all these other things are going to sing different bird songs and calls as well. And I remember being out birding and being like trailing down this hawk and finally coming across the culprit and it was a blue jay. And like that learning experience was both very necessary <laughs> as a birder, but also very aggravating. I'm like so excited to see this bird of prey when I walk it's up. It's so aggravating. This happened to me so many times, literally it's, two weeks ago. It's constant. And you walk up and it's a freaking, and you're like, seriously, like, why do you do this? And it's just, it's mind numbingly funny, admittedly, to watch it happen to other people. But so it's super interesting that it happens. They're just freaking pranksters and I don't appreciate it. Well, they are part of the group Corvidae. So like, Them's the crows and the ravens, like it's kind of on brand for them, frankly. Cloth the blue jay, red tail hawk noise. I'm gonna put that in right here. All righty, Brittany, you're up. All right, so my first creature, um, that animal I'm gonna be talking about is actually the blue tongue skink. So the blue tongue skink is actually found in the northern parts of Australia. And so they're really cool because their whole body is just basically one big mimic of a very venomous snake that is found in the same areas of northern Australia, which is the death adder. And so the death adder doesn't usually have that long, slick body, like a normal character, like characteristic snake type shape. They're a little bit chunkier. They're a little bit of like, they're a little bit more... Like a little thicker, if you will. Um, and so the blue tongue skink actually has that same type of body shape. They also have a couple of other really cool um, body characteristics. Their head shape is more 
more like a snake head shape. And they also have like these short stubby little legs that legitimately don't help them at all other than to be able to um, kind of pretend like they're not there and they look more snake-like. So a lot of times predators won't see these short stubby little legs that they have, which really does make them more like look more like this death adder. Um, and so the reason why um, this is super helpful for them is because a lot of animals in that region know death adders are going to be dangerous. And so they're going to try to avoid them. Um, and so it gives the blue tongue skink a chance, a better chance of survival. They have some other really cool adaptations that, if that doesn't work, help them be able to escape. But being able to really mimic it, um, that, that death adder shape is one of their primary survival traits. That's pretty neato. I love a blue tongue skink. And I know that you also love a blue tongue skink, Brittany. You love a blue tongue skink so much you get a little love bite from them. Listen, listen, we're not going to talk about that. Um, um, I do, I do love a blue tongue skink. They are, they have grown on me a, a, a tad. Um, <laughs> no, they're really cool. Honestly, they're one of my favorite animals to interpret about because they're just, they have just so many really cool, A, the, from the mimicry to like their like they're able to drop their tails if there is a predator coming. Like they're just really they're just cool. super cool. Yeah, they're super yeah. super cool. Love a blue tongue skink. We love Matt, to see it. Give us our next one. Yeah, so um, it would be remiss if I did not discuss a bird. You know, at the end of the day, these are kind of my two passions at this point: is moths and birds. You know, I got suckered into the bug life and kind of loving it, but never going to let go of these birds and one species that i stumbled across that admittedly i'd never come across before and is so fascinating to me is a species called the zone-tailed hawk zone-tailed hawks are a species of well hawk that fly over really a large amount of different habitats in both north and south america and they are like other hawks they are predatorial but the issue that hawks encounter, and I've seen this all the time, I'm sure all of us birders have seen it before, is that zone-tailed hawks, just like other hawks, are recognized. They are recognizable. Hawks get avoided by smaller birds because smaller birds don't want to get preyed upon. So certain groups of birds like corvids, like our blue jays, will mob hawks if they're in the area. They will like go and literally chase them out or they will just avoid if they are smaller. That's how birds deal with hawks in the area. And so the zone-tailed hawk actually employs a mimicry strategy that allows it to sneak up and get closer to these birds than they normally would allow. The way that they do this is by mimicking vultures. So new world vultures and old world vultures display a split. Old world vultures are related more so to raptors, to those hawks and to those other birds. And they kind of look in suit. Whereas new world vultures actually, you know, their, their taxonomy is really weird. People aren't totally sure yet, but sometimes storks have been tossed around and other birds like that. 
And vultures are birds of prey technically, but they're very distinct in the fact that they aren't hunters. They are not seekers and gatherers. They are, let me come across some dead stuff and eat it. And birds know this, especially in the new world. They know that those certain characteristics of vultures mean that they are pretty well safe because vultures don't go on the hunt. What are these characteristics, you might ask? Well, for starters, they have lengthened tails, which allow for, you know, with hawks or which allow with vultures for certain flying and migrating characteristics. And they also have what's known as dihedral forming wings. Now, raptors and, you know, specifically hawks and eagles, when they're out on an air current up there, way up in the air, their wings are flat relative to their body. They create one plane. They create a straight line from wingtip through body to other wingtip. However, vultures display a dihedral wing formation, which means rather than being a straight line, their wingtips are slightly above their body, which bows them out. They kind of look like a, like a if you were to dig a hole in the ground. They carve out a little bit, and it's known as a dihedral flight pattern. And zone-tailed hawks mimic this flight pattern, as well as they have black plumage. And the weirdest thing is that they have a distinctive wobble in their flight. Vultures are gliders, but they kind of suck at gliding. And the way that you can tell a bird way, way, way up in the air, you know, without being able to see any coloration or any of those body characteristics and stuff like that is... If it looks like it's struggling on the wind, like it's kind of wobbling a little bit, it's probably a vulture. So the zone-tailed hawk mimics this to where all these things combined, they resemble turkey vultures, and in doing so, are allowed to be closer to a lot of these birds and other forms of prey that they consume. Because these prey are keyed into the fact that a vulture is not going to really come chasing them. But when they're dealing with a zone-tailed hawk who looks like a vulture. Oftentimes when they realize that they've been duped, it's too late. It's a very fascinating form of mimicry that, like I said, I'd actually never come across before, but nonetheless is one that's really important to a lot of different species in a cascade effect across different groups, taxa, all that. It has big implications on the species that live there. It's very, very interesting and I think it's really sick. Like, it's really, really cool. All right. Well, from the skies to the seas, we're going to head on down and talk about the mimic octopus. So these guys have mimic in their name. So these bad boys are freaking pros at the mimicking game. So these guys are actually mimic a couple of different animals. They're actually able to change like the texture of their body to the way that some of their tentacles move to just the way that they are kind of swimming around to be able to look like sea, sea snakes, jellyfish, and starfish. And so, um, like I was saying, they're able to um, change the texture of their skin to be able to make themselves look more like one of these animals. 
And specifically for it with um, sea snakes, they're actually able to um, manipulate their tentacles in a way that makes them, like if they're standing, if they're just like chilling and standing still, they're able to look more like a sea snake. And that's really cool. And the reason why they do this is because the uh, sea snakes that they they mimic are uh, venomous. And so with a the mimic octopuses being able to mimic those uh, those movements and their the texture of that skin, they're able to stay safe from those pre from predators that are going to want to make them a snack. And I just think that's really cool. Like octopus in general are really cool. They're really smart. They're able to they're really able to adapt and learn from like their surroundings. And so the fact that these guys are really able to just change their entire body to be able to fit and fit in, it's incredible. And just honestly, uh, it amazes me. The ocean in general is just amazing because there's so many things that we just don't know. But the mimic octopus is just amazing. What's amusing about this is I think I want to say we've referenced this species on the podcast before. And I don't remember why, but I'm very grateful that you came in and kind of gave us the business on it because it's such a cool, really weird species that deserves all the recognition in the world. And I'm glad we finally got to give it a platform, if you will, because it was referenced in passing. Like it wasn't a big discussed a topic I thought, yeah i definitely think it was something correctly. like when we talked about like cephalopods or something because yeah you know mimic octopus are just so crazy crazy cool they're able to mimic some other animals as well but like the the three that i mentioned are ones that like they know a lot about are <laughs> scientists. so weird mm -hmm. i mean it's wild to think that like i mean we talked a little about cuttlefish earlier right that these cephalopods have just such interesting you know mechanics in their life and their brains and their behavior they're so so fascinating it's like a martian like crash land i literally Earth. sometimes feel like cephalopods are alien they they feel alien it's so different i love it yeah they're awesome they truly are awesome we are on to our last animal to talk about biomimicry today and in line with some of the other things that we've talked about, we're, we're leaning pretty heavy into reptiles this episode. We talked about coral snakes, we talked about skinks, and now we're talking about another reptile, a turtle this time. So if you've ever seen this species, you might be thinking, how could somebody confuse that for something as small as a worm? Today, we're talking about the alligator snapping turtle. Alligator snapping turtles are massive, massive reptiles that live in fresh bodies of water. They can live, you know, 200 plus years. They can weigh over 150, over 200 pounds. They're these massive turtles. Their shells can be over three feet long. They're huge. But surprisingly enough, they can be confused for a tiny worm. The alligator snapping turtle's tongue is actually very tiny and it's very wriggly and it's bright pink so what they'll do is they will sit extremely still like many other reptiles alligator snapping turtles are ambush predators they'll sit extremely still with their mouths open under the water and wriggle that worm-like tongue until a fish comes by and nabs it 
Now, this worm-like tongue actually has a name because there are a bunch of different species that have similar adaptations. This name for this worm-like tongue is called a vermiform appendage, which basically just means that it's worm-shaped. So they use their little worm-shaped tongue, wriggle it around, and attract a meal for them. This is an example of an aggressive mimicry. Basically, it means that a predator appears to be something else, something harmless, so that the prey doesn't recognize it as a threat, similar to the zone-tailed hawks. The lure isn't required for the animal to be considered a, an aggressive mimic, but basically the ability to closely approach the prey is enough for that. But that lure definitely makes things easier for the turtle. So that is our final example of biomimicry for this episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Let's jump into our outro for today. Where can y'all be found on the social medias? Find me on Instagram at Matt Valiga. That is M-A-T-T-V's and Victor A-L-I-G-A. And hopefully I'll be able to catch y'all up with my life now as a grad student going through some, you know, it's a major lifestyle change that I'm realizing. And so I'll be able to bring y'all along with it. It's just my first week back. So going to be some readjustments, which I'm kind of excited about. It's fun stepping into that new phase of life. Yeah, well, we're definitely glad to have you back, Matt. You know, we had Jack on last week, but glad to have you here. Brittany, where can you be found? You can find me on Instagram at the Brittany underscore bunch, T-H-E-B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y underscore B-U-N-C-H. Um, I've kind of just been posting in like not very frequently, but I'm working on it. Um, just adjusting to, you know, new life at work. But it's just going to be a bunch about my life here in Missouri. I'm in Missouri. And... And, and just, yeah, just fun stuff. Come check it out. I love to see it. Love to hear it. I am on the social medias as well at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. And this week, I'll probably share a picture that I posted on Instagram for my 19th birthday six years ago when I actually went to the Rainforest Cafe for the last time. Rip Cha-Cha. Hashtag Rip Cha-Cha, everybody. On the social medias, on our, on our post for this week, put hashtag Rip Cha-Cha. Oh, Rip Cha-Cha. Hashtag Rip Cha-Cha, everybody. Make it trending. Make it trending. Hashtag Rip Cha-Cha. Rip Cha-Cha. Well, you can find us all collectively on our Instagram at the Birdie Bunch Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram and Facebook and at our website, thebirdiebunchpodcast.com, where we have lots of fun stuff. You can find a blog post about this episode uh, with all of our resources that we use and all of our current events as well. You can also find our merch store. Like I mentioned, this is the last week to get that I'm Plovin' It design. So make sure to get that before it goes away to help support a really awesome cause of providing closed captioning to the Monty and Rose documentary. I'm really excited because next weekend I'm actually going to go to see it. So really, really stoked <sighs> for that. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. I miss everything. <laughs> I didn't even we... get to meet the guy. I met him twice already. <laughs> I'm the one who... We shot to him. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, also, on our website, you can find our Patreon. So if you support us on Patreon, there's a bunch of really cool tiers. So go check that out. You can get some really awesome perks, including a shout-out here on the podcast. So big shout-out to Gabe Andelay again. I know that we shouted out Gabe in the beginning of the podcast. So thanks, Gabe. It was really awesome birding with you this weekend. Um, thanks for coming to Chicago. And uh, we will 
I have to catch up again soon. Maybe you can be a guest on the podcast. Who knows? Mm-hmm. We love all kinds of connections. So again, you can get a shout out here on the podcast if you join us on Patreon. So please do that. If you can't support us financially, that's totally fine. One thing that you can do to support the Birdie Bunch podcast is share this podcast with a friend. If you share this podcast with a friend, I'll be really happy. So do that. Some some take-home homework for you. Share this podcast with a friend. Thanks. If you're like, no, I don't want to do that. Screw you, CJ. Fine. You know what? I get it. I understand. But the least you could do, the least you could do, dear listener, is leave us a review. If you leave us a five-star review, we will read your review here on the podcast. So if you leave a five-star review and then put, CJ, I don't like the way that you say squirrel, I'll be like, well, darn. But I'll have to read it on the podcast anyway. So do that. That'd be funny. Anyway, this wraps up another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Any other comments, questions, concerns from you folks? Mm -mm. Nope. Well, thank you again, dear listeners. Have a great week, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.